back on my word a little bit. I told you at Mother's Day that that was the Mother's Day and Father's Day message, and then some of the ladies asked me if I was going to um, uh, be as hard on the men today as I was the women. I didn't realize I was hard on the women last time. Uh, uh, I thought I was trying to be quite equitable in the, in the pressure and the burden as a high calling for husbands and wives, uh, certainly working together, but I do want to encourage our fathers today and exhort them as well from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, I heard this week, I was watching the news, and one of the commentators, uh, not, not overtly Christian in any way that I could have been able to tell in the past, uh, just went on this flourish. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was off script, but he, call, he was calling on pastors uh, need to be in the pulpit and preach the truth. Uh, and now here's a secular commentator calling upon the churches uh, that said that Sunday morning can no longer be cotton candy and caramel, uh, that we need pastors who will stand in the pulpit and preach the truth of God's word. And uh, I was really shocked at that, at that exhortation. I, I'm surprised it doesn't get deleted. I don't know if you could find it on YouTube right now. But as I thought about that this week, uh, I thought about I would reverse that somewhat. Uh, yes, we do need pastors all over the nation, all over the world who will be faithful to the truth of God's word. But what we need as well is men in the home who will be the pastors of their home. Uh, they'll be doing the same thing in their home as, uh, as uh, God has called for pastors to be doing in pulpits. Granted, uh, the Lord does give gifts to the church of pastors and teachers. And so uh, husbands and fathers ought to bring their families into the house of God where they can utilize and be blessed by those gifts. But that doesn't relieve fathers from the responsibility of being the pastors in their own home. And so I would turn it back on that commentator and ask him, <clears throat> are you that faithful at home? Or... Would you just as soon to entertain and provide materially for your family, bring them to church once a week, and let the pastor uh, get them grounded in the truth? If you're relying on that alone and you have all week to influence them in other ways, then you're probably not going to be successful in seeing the turnaround nationally and globally, uh, culturally, that you would like to see. And so that's why my heart was drawn to Deuteronomy <clears throat> Uh, really, I encourage you today, sometimes perhaps fathers, particularly to read uh, all the early chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses now has kind of come to the end of his ministry. Uh, he's rehearsing the history of God's dealing with his people Israel. He's talked about their stiff-hearted, stiff-necked and uh, hard-heartedness along the way, the wanderings in the wilderness, God's faithfulness throughout. Uh, he's rehearsing here as before they go into the promised land in regards to God having given them his word and all that that would involve to their future. And I'm picking up in chapter 6. I'll just read those 25 verses. Moses says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you for all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen 
And be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and that they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord would swore to give to your fathers by driving out all your enemies before you as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which our Lord God commanded you? Then you shall say to him, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from the Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the clarion call of scripture for not just fathers but for men to be men to be men of God, to follow you with all of our hearts. Father, I pray for the the special role of fathers and the influence that they can have in our lives. We look around in our culture today and, and it is no mystery, even secular authorities are beginning to recognize that fatherless homes have contributed to chaos in society. There is no order. And so, Father, I pray that through today's word, through your scripture, through the spirit, that you would grant us as men and as fathers and even grandfathers to feel the weight of our calling. But Lord, I pray that you would engage even the young men in the church who are even now under training as men, who if your will is accomplished will be fathers themselves some days. Now is the day of their preparation. Father, I pray that they would not dismiss the words today and 
and say to themselves, I'll worry about it when the day comes, but they, they would understand that they're in training now to be those men later. And Father, help us who are of age now to be faithful to your word. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Y'all excuse me a minute, I'm gonna grab my water. My voice is already going out. So, so as I'm gonna be sharing from Deuteronomy 6. And one of the, as I mentioned in my prayer there, we're all very much aware as we watch the news uh, of the chaos surrounding us nowadays. And uh, one of the things that's really, uh, really bothered me uh, as we watch some of the news unfold, particularly in the public school forums and school board meetings, uh, how often it's mothers. Uh, I would say, I'd guess seven to one or seven, seven to three, seven mothers uh, speaking strongly and boldly to school boards and maybe three fathers. Uh, and I think to myself, that ought to be all fathers. Uh, that ought to be all the fathers of those homes. It may be that uh, their wives are more directly engaged in the children's lives at school because the father is working to provide for the home, and I understand that intimacy with that curriculum, but uh, I worry that men would subjugate themselves and put their wives out there in the front. And Perhaps we've been kowtowed by culture to think, well, if we do it, we're automatically going to be dismissed because we are the minority we're the most uh, hated in some ways in our generation. So maybe she can say things that I wouldn't get away with. That's an abdication rooted in cowardice, I think. Uh, our fathers and men ought to be the ones standing there. and They ought to be speaking without, without any hesitation in no uncertain terms in regards to what they expect uh, in that system. And so that's where a call to manhood. But I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about the necessity of the word and obedience for men, for fathers. I say that because he mentions here sons and grandsons. The implication is the fathers is who he's tasking now. You remember before this, Moses rehearses that when they went up to the mount, when God spoke the commandment from the mountain, in fact, the people suggested that they gather 70 elders and take them up around the mountain together and then they would hear the word and they would go out and teach them. All these were men that God had called to these positions to hear the word and then to further instruct the people. And I think that translates all the way down from Moses to the elders there who were serving, to the judges in their communities, and also down to the fathers in the home. So it is a calling for men here. Now, I'm not excluding women, and you have a very specific role in that. It's a joint effort to educate our children, but I'm speaking directly to what God has called the men to be in that generation. And Moses is appealing now to men. So if you want to contextualize this, men, Moses is speaking to you. Now, he's speaking, he's speaking under the Mosaic law and under that covenant, so we know that there's grace. So it was a New Testament application for us as well, but it makes no difference that he's speaking to men here, and that's critical. And I want to think about the necessity of what he's saying here. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. In verse 22 through 29, I, I, would read, I won't read all of these, but these are the words the Lord spoke to you all at the assembly at the mount. So of a necessity is that, it is, is that this is the word of the Lord. 
He's not saying to them, indoctrinate your sons and your children to the culture of the day. He's not saying necessarily indoctrinate them to your traditions, perhaps even built up around good things, although that in and of itself is not a bad thing often. What he's saying that you are to be teaching and that's what's necessary here is the transference of the Word of God. It is, as the title is, it's the preservation now of godliness through fatherhood. The instrument is fatherhood, but it is the Word of God that we are to be communicating generationally. It's not anything else. It's not what's particularly trendy in the day. It is the Word of God, the unchanging Word of God, the Word of God by which every one of our sons and our daughters and our families will be held accountable someday. So, so it is, that's critical to me in this passage, and even in my understanding of fatherhood, it is that the primary object of our communication to the generations is the Word of God. Now, we're going to translate other things as well. In, 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 inadvertently, sometimes, our personalities, the way we approach things, all those are influential and environmental things. But those things are not a substitute for the Word of God. I don't want my son to be strong or soft-spoken just because his dad was. I want him to, however he was put together, to have a firm grasp of the truth of God's Word. That's the necessity that we can't, we can't preserve, these people will not survive in the land if the Word of God is not being transferred, translated to the generations that follow. They had just spent 40 years in the wilderness. And they've not yet entered into the promised land. And Moses already knows. Notice in verse uh, 29, Verse 28 of chapter 5, The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the verse, vo voice of the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They had said, you, you go up and get the commands and you come and tell us. But then God says this in verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. <clears throat> You go up, get the word, bring us the word. And God says to Moses, they have spoken well, but oh, how I wish they had a heart to obey the word. He's already anticipating that they won't have, won't have that, and they certainly faltered in the promised land after they went in, in their disobedience. But what's, what's getting lost is the transference of this truth. So it is of a necessity that it be true. Let me just say, not a dilution of popular culture and opinion and a twisting of that word to accommodate generational or cultural norms. I made the comment last week, or maybe it was Wednesday night, but I heard just a kind of a back and forth discussion about bathing suits and modesty and things like that. And I shared Wednesday night how I was inclined to say, if you go back to 1910 and show their bathing suits compared to the most modest today, they would think you were naked. And somehow the Word of God gets translated to the generations to where that might become acceptable in one culture. So I'm not talking about the transference of the Word diluted to accommodate each individual culture. That's how we got where we are. 
It's the Word of God, rightly interpreted, rightly understood in its historical context, spoken to the audience to whom God directed it to. That Word is necessary for, what he's, for the preserving of the people, for literally their survival. In verses 20, 32 and 33 of chapter 5, he says here, So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you possess. In chapter 6, verse 3, O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord of the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So it is necessary for your entry into the promised land. This is preparation not only for their entry but for their, their prolonging once they're there. In other words, I'm going to bring you into the promised land, this promised place to your forefathers by the word, by these commands. And when you're there, you will be sustained in the land, victorious and multiplying and prospering in the land by the same word. I'm not giving you the word to get you in and then you go your own way. And that's exactly what we saw the history of Israel happening. They came into the land, they conquered the enemies, they took the place, and then they were disobedient. And then we get into the cycle of the judges. They would yield, repent, God would deliver, they would drift away again the next 20 years, God would raise up another judge, and on and on it went until finally they demanded a king, and God relented and gave them the king that they wanted, Saul. And that brought its own problems. And the, the commentary then is God permits Samuel to give them their king. And, and he says to them, they have not rejected you, Samuel, in asking for a king. They have rejected me from being king over them. Nevertheless, grant them their wish. And then he had the mandate upon the king and the people to do what? To do what he's saying here. To obey the word. So this word that we're speaking of is necessary for them to both enter into the promised land or into that relationship, as it were, and then to be sustained in that environment as well. It's necessary. As America, I think we, we begin at least with Christian foundations or the thought process of liberty took into account scriptural realities, namely the fallen nature of man. We're probably the only constitution on the, on the planet that allows for fallen men and has checks and balances because no man, because he is fallen in his nature, can be trusted with that sort of power. And so I have no doubt that this nation was founded upon Christian theology. But we've departed from that. Christian theology brought us in, as it were, to a land of promise and a land of liberty. But we have not held fast to that word, that same theology. And now we see freedom leaking away at a, at a fast pace and a frightening pace. So the word is necessary to enter in and the word is necessary to be sustained upon the entry and to live long in that land. It is necessary as well for your well-being and the prolonging of your days. I've already mentioned those verses 33, but over and over again in these first several chapters, it's tied to their well-being and the prolonging of their days. 
Now, you can have prolonged days without well-being. We've all known people who have suffered under some disease for long periods, 7, 8, 10, sometimes 20 years, and they have prolonged days, but it is not with well-being. These are two companions. The Word is central. The communicating of this Word generationally is central to your well-being and the prolonging of your days in the land. In fact, it's a mercy that God would not allow the prolonging without the well-being. Because then you just encourage people in their misery or you just prolong their misery. He would often bring judgment, rebuke them. They would repent and turn away. And then maybe they would be a generation that knew God. But then that generation followed them because they weren't doing this and wound up going away from God again. Thus needing another deliverer. On and on and on. His mercies, as we've just sang, are new every morning it seems. The necessity of the word in regards to our well-being and not only the word but the communicating of that word. It is also in verse 13 of chapter 6, it is necessary in that through it we may learn to fear him. In verse 13 he says, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. That's central. The Word of God, the testimony of those statutes, the, the, them pointing to the nature of God Himself. This is the God who is communicated through the teaching generationally to our children, generation after generation. Deny that or disregard that or, or, or make that of small import and then you set that next generation up to fall away. I think one of the problems in our culture today, even among Christian circles, is that we have such a diminished view of God, a low view of God. And as you've heard other people say, a low view of God automatically produces a high view of self. And so what little God we have remaining in so many cases, we've, we've adjusted him to be the footstool or the, or the bellhop for the exalted self. Low views of God, high views of man. These were to come in through the word, through the spirit, into the promised land. And in order to be sustained there, they must recognize that God, he is one and that he alone is God and he alone is to be worshipped. No other gods before him. We won't survive generations without this truth being transferred generationally from one generation to the next. Fathers, our, we won't last long in the land if you don't teach your children these things. If you occupy them with all the skills necessary to be successful in the business world or in, the, in any other industry, all the things necessary for them to provide materially and leave this off, they won't be sustained in the land. Yes, teach them those things. Teach them to be productive, but don't leave off the Word. That's what's critical to their preservation. And fathers, that's the calling in our lives. And then there's this necessity of this generational continuity. In verses 7 of chapter 6 and also verse 20 through two things, teaching, I think, and examples. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And then by example in verse 20, when, you, when your son asks you, that was the verse that really struck me this week. He's telling them, this is what you ought to be doing. He's already, I'm going to go back to that in a moment. This is the way you transfer this generationally. But it doesn't indicate that at the moment you're doing it that the boy asks anything about it. 
The implication is you're doing it from infancy. You're exposing them to the truth. When you wake up, when you walk, whatever you're doing, you're, and you're teaching them and demonstrating the truth to them. And then the implication here is that someday they're going to, having heard that through the years, they're going to say, Father, what is the meaning of this word? That's when you tell them. That's when you tell them. There was a great deliverance, son. We were in bondage to our sin. We were held down and oppressed by our enemy. That's the word that you have in your hand, son. We're a people who were delivered out of bondage and brought into the freedom of the sons of God. That's what that word means. But he didn't ask that when you were teaching it. You were, you were teaching it all along the way. And so by the time he gets to the point that he's asking it, he's noticed there's something unique about this word. What does it mean, Dad? Now you've got a chance to disciple him. Now you tell him what it means. And it opens up those scriptures to a, 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 an endless world of reality and of glory. So there is the necessity for that generational continuity is that we teach the kids. Notice it's interesting to me as well. He says, teach here, and then he says later, talk of them as you're going this way and that. So I think he means here there is a formal distribution or a communication of the words of God. In this case, not only the Ten Commandments, but all those commandments that Moses went up to receive from God and delivered to them in this context. So there is a formal, a more formal systematic teaching of the words of God. Fathers, that's your responsibility. Mothers, thank you for your great help and, and all that you do and the sacrifice you involve in doing that as well. But fathers, it is our responsibility, whether through the instrumentality of our wife and her submission there or whether it is directly, but it must be formally communicated. Memorization, Bible book studies, courses, indoctrinate them with the truth of God's Word rather than let the culture indoctrinate them with the ways of this world. That continuity is dependent upon that, to teach them the Word. The church is here to disciple fathers so that you might become better disciplers of your children in the home. Pastors and teachers God gives to the church to equip fathers to do the pastoring and the teaching in their homes. Teach them the Word. Fathers, that automatically means you got to know it. And if you're a father and you say, I don't have a good enough grasp of it, get you a grasp. Find somebody that does know it. Open your Bible. Break your heart. Fall on your knees and say, oh God, with this weight upon me and the generations dependent upon me being faithful, open my eyes to the truth and then share it. To whatever degree you're able to now, share it. But by all means, don't think that you have exhausted all knowledge. Seek out a greater understanding of the Scriptures. And as you gain it, share it with your sons and your daughters and your family. Because that's necessary for the continuity of God's people. Or do you let the Word die with you? And your children know nothing about it. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to be in my grave and my children and grandchildren looking at my grave and saying, you know what? He was a really good man. 
I would rather them to be standing there thinking about the text they had been taught through the years that their father and their grandfather was trying to conform his life to those realities. I would rather them be thinking of glorious things, not, the, not how good a guy their grandpa and their dad was. There's something far more important. And that is the truth because that's what's necessary for continuity. Fathers, teach your children. And then there's the personal examples as well. I think mainly here through personal devotion. Look in verse chapter 6, verse 6. He says to them, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. On your heart. So it's not just a, a rote repetition. There is a room for rote teaching and memorizing of the Scriptures. But he's saying to the fathers, it's not just a communicating and memorizing the Scriptures, but the Word itself has to have been, been a part of your heart. It has to have been saturated in you. Let you think and breathe and speak Scripture almost instinctively. Let the Word transform you and then teach the Word so part of this heart, I think, is seen in verse 4. Whenever he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Let me say first here, part of that necessity and the generational continuity of this truth is that the fathers must hear the Word. Personally, and then the people of God, fathers collectively, and their families must, as the God's people, hear the Word. Two things there, a personal hearing and a corporate hearing. Fathers, you need to be a hearer of the Word. You need to have heard the Word of God, the living Word of God. And you need to unite yourself with other members who have also heard the Word of God. I feel sorry sometimes for folks who are looking for a place to gather with fellow believers where the Word of God is proclaimed and heard, and they're finding more and more difficult to find a place where that's happening. Yes, fathers, you need to be personally a hearer of the Word, but you need to be a part of a church where there's a hearing of the Word too, simply because you don't have all the gifts. Iron sharpeneth iron. Being around brothers in Christ causes us honing on one another and we're drawing closer and boy, becoming more understanding of the truth of God's Word. We are equipped and edified by gathering with those who also have heard. Fathers, don't unite yourself somewhere where with a group of men where there is no hearing of the Word or no proclaiming of the Word. So it's a personal devotion that comes through our having heard the Word of God. There is also a personal by personal and corporate consecration in 6.4 as well. He says there, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Our God. That struck me. We're not, we're not transferring the truth of a God. The Lord is the God of Israel. He is my personal God. He is the God of all those who have heard the Word of God. We are His possessions. Hear, O Israel, hear individually men and hear the people of God that the Lord is our God. No other gods before Him. Not even ourselves. 
No other gods. He is our God. That is that personal consecration and then that corporate consecration as well. Gather together men of God, churches where men gather together and hone one another through the truth of God's word so that we trust in him personally as our God, but that we are united to a people who acknowledge him as our God. Let me just say this, and I hope you know this and realize it. Do you know who the head of this church is? It's Christ. There was never given another substitute. He is head of this church. He has under shepherds who serve in different capacities, but they are all accountable to him. There is one God, and he is the God of Diamond Hill. He is the God of the men of Diamond Hill. And fathers, he is to be your God. Not a God or not some God or not a culture's God, but your God. That's, that's part of the generational transference of this reality, this truth. He must be our God. Verse 5, I think it's transferred as well, or the continuity is assured by our loving the Lord with the whole of our being. Notice he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Some people divide that up differently, but I think of that in terms of with the affections, with the, with the inner man, with the spirit as it were, and with all of your will. Everything you can bring to bear, love him with the whole of your being. Fathers, if we want continuity, our sons to grow up and lead their families as well, you better love God. You better love God. One of the haunting things about me sometimes that I think about sometimes is how discerning children really are, but they're not old enough or they dare not articulate to me what they've observed. Because I wonder sometimes if my children or grandchildren or even the kids in the Sunday school class are not have, make observations of inconsistencies in my life that would suggest that I don't love God with all of my being, but they dare not speak to an adult about such things, but how discerning their observations may be. Maybe something you shouldn't be obsessed about, but something that should cross our minds, Father. Are we loving the Lord with everything that we are? Is all your affections set upon the Lord or are they divided out amongst a lot of other things in this world? Shared with the kids from James this morning. Friendship is, with the world is enmity or hostility towards God because you are acknowledging that I desire and want something that God cannot provide but the world can. So I will choose to let the world feed my flesh and reject that God has a better place for me. It is hostility with God. Did your children, fathers, see your affections divided and distributed among many other things or would they say of your father though he is not a perfect man he loves the Lord he loves the Lord and does your spirit does he is, are you moved within in the depth of your soul by the glory of that same God are you affected by his glory have you seen him have you experienced him Love him with the whole of your being, with the depths of the inner man, and love them with all your will, all the might, all the strength that you can devote yourself to him, relying upon his grace when there is weakness. But with everything in me, I am devoted to loving Christ. First of all, you don't love someone like that unless you met him. But if you've ever met him, you're learning to love him that way. Father's we're to love him with all of our affections. If we want to see this continuity, 
We're to love him, obviously, by our personal transformation. Verse 6, I've already touched on it. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Not just a head knowledge, not just, a, not, not just something that would manifest itself in legalism, which it really did in the life of many of the Jews, but that you would know him in your heart, that the word of God would rest upon you in such a way as to shape and to fashion every, everything you see and do. He's going to touch on that a little later here, but a heart the word is set upon the heart. It's not a side thing that you have to draw up from somewhere. Let me run and get my Bible and see if there's a verse that works here. Let the word be so saturated upon our hearts that every circumstances brings scripture to mind, brings truth to mind that is bearing on that subject. No, it's no wonder so many Baptists fail to witness anymore. We don't know the scriptures. We're scared to death that they're going to ask us a question that we don't have a verse for. Well, when the Word is saturating and penetrating into the depths of your heart and shaping your mind, it's not hard to think of a text that bears to the subject you're talking about. God will grant that. If there's going to be continuity, there must be a personal transformation in the hearts of men by the Word. Again, there is to be that teaching I've already touched on that is to be former Formal in some ways, the teaching there, but then less formal in the talking. But for, certainly here, there is to be a diligence in that. You can't just do this one generation. Because if that generation doesn't do it, then they lose the next generation. Generation after generation after generation. And you need to teach us, fathers, we need to teach our children now. That's what I said to young men sitting in this uh, congregation today. You are in training now as a father. And the duty will one day, the mantle will shift to you to be responsible for the discipling of the generation that follows you, for bringing the truth to bear in that generation. If you care anything about the generations that will follow you, you must be faithful to that today. And you look around in our nation today, and there's, there's been those too many who have not been faithful. And now we have a generation adrift that no longer even believe that there is such a thing as objective truth and reality. And they are set, a, set adrift, as it were, in a culture that will feed them the idea that whatever they feel in their emotions is valid in their truth, quote unquote. That's a dangerous place for us to be. So there's to be teaching, but there is to be diligence, Father, diligence in doing that. To whatever capacity God has given you and granted you, be diligent to be teaching your children, both formally and by example, as he shares. I love the talking here in verse 7. Less formal, perhaps, but I don't get the sense here he means any less urgent. He says, you, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I love that because, again, it, re, it reiterates this idea that the Word has affected us in such a way as that we think Bible. We go for a walk or we, we go to a ball game or we go fishing. Wherever we are, our minds are always looking at the world through a scriptural lens. And at every opportunity, not to be annoying or, or troublesome to the child, but in a way that's whimsical and, and draws out the curiosity of the child. And perhaps quote a verse of scripture. You know, God spoke to this many centuries ago through his word when he said this thing or that thing. Talking about it as you go. 
while you're reclining and resting around the house when you think it's downtime. It's never downtime, fathers, not for this job. It's always thinking of everything in terms. I mean, you can look at a tree and come up with Scripture. So, so there's the downtime there. Be talking about it then. There's the time when you're going on errands or you're running a chore, when you're in the car driving down the road. Keep a, be observant. Listen to what's going on. Listen to what they may say. Talk about the Word. That's the thing that's going to assure this continuity. Give them the Word at every opportunity in casual conversation. When you get up in the morning, start out with the Word. When you go to bed at night, close out their day with the Word. Always bringing the Word to bear in example and in word uh, uh, no less urgent but in a common natural way and in a very formal liturgical way if need be the word is what's essential for this continuity the word then in verses 8 and 9 there is this personal obedience or that's the way I termed this notice what he says to them as individual these are fathers you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. There's an order there that's significant. But the thing I struck me powerfully about this is that these things were for a sign. They were essentially a reminder to the fathers that this is the business that I am to be about. If the nation of Israel is to survive, I must receive my duty to do these things. So I'm going to put Scripture in a little black leather box, and I'm going to tie it to my wrist. And whatever my hands find to do, I'm going to be reminded that they are to be guided by the Scriptures. I'm going to put one right in the center of my forehead, a little box called a phylactery with the scriptures inside, and they're going to be right in between my eyes. So wherever my eyes find to let themselves light, I'm going to be thinking in terms of what saith the Word of God in regards to what I'm seeing. What should I set my eyes upon? It also speaks to me of what the mind dwells upon, the Word of God right here on my forehead. I mean, that would be uncomfortable. But it's a constant reminder of these fathers to be diligent to do these things. When you find yourself wavering in, in your obedience to this, be reminded in the mirror or in a dark glass and you see that box on your head or you reach out your hand and you see that little box. I'm to be about communicating this truth to the next generation. And the future of the, my people is dependent upon it. That personal obedience and devotion Notice as well, after they have the signs upon their own bodies and reminders, only then and only then are they to write them upon the gates and the doors. Notice that begins with the inward man, but then it stretches out to access into the home. It's on the gate. What comes through our gate? What enters our property? What enters our premises? The Word. What gets inside the house, for goodness sake? The Word. Think of all the things that we allow into our gates and into our house, into the presence of our children without the Word at all. In fact, contradictory to the word. Think of all the things we expose our kids to. As I was sharing with someone yesterday, I adopted James's phrase to things like that. Brothers, these things ought not to be. These things ought not to be. And so all these signs. And I'm going to conclude with verse 20. Why do this? Why do this? If you've got a little, a little boy or a little girl you got little kids and you're working and you're working to try to be faithful at this. And, and sometimes it seems like they're not responding very well to it. 
And I imagine it was the same way with them, generation after generation, that the little ones come up, they got sinful natures, they get into stuff and all sorts of mischief. And sometimes, I remember when Jessica was a little girl, the most contentious time in our household was when we tried to sit down and do a devotion. Parents, amen. <laughs> That's the most contentious time in our household. They could be little angels all day long, but as soon as they said, come here, gather on the couch, let's open up the Bible. I want to do this. Most contentious time. So you think sometimes this is not working. But I love, that's why I love verse 20, because having ordered them or commanded that they do these things, in verse 20 says, and when your son, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean? which our Lord God commanded you, then you shall say to him. Uh, I, when I read this, I thought about, then you shall explain to him what you mean when you say we are sinners. Then you will explain, then you can explain to him what you mean when you say son, father was once a dark, a lost man living in darkness. And he reached out in every direction in this world, tried to find something to fill the void in his own soul. And he found himself helplessly and hopelessly despairing time after time until one day the Lord reached out into that darkness, took me up and delivered me from that bondage and the oppression of my sin and delivered in me into the newness of life. Son, that's what the word means. I've been teaching you all of these years. And that's the word addressed to you, son. Because having not received Christ, you are yet in that darkness. But you have the word. You have the truth. And now you're asking, what does the truth mean? And there's no better question for you to be asking, son. Here's what it means. Here's what it means to you personally. And if that son comes to know Jesus Christ, then he becomes a father who raises his children in the same way. And these children, generation after generation, get exposed to the truth of God. And by his sovereign grace and will, he brings out of the darkness whom he will and establishes them for the faithfulness of the next generation until the Lord returns. I get amazed sometimes at the brilliant politicians who are all opining in regards to what the real need of America is. And every Christian in this nation, true Christian, knows what the problem is. We've abandoned God. We've closed these Bibles. And we've, we've kept these Bibles read in the church and not read and ascribed to in the heart and in the home. And as a result, we've become tolerant of everything coming and going. And the, and the, and the wickedness of this world has decided, well... If they're okay with that, if they'll acclimate to that, let's introduce the newest thing. And year after year, that's what we've been seeing until now. We're expected to, to receive and to celebrate even the most, the most perverted of sins in our generation. And only now, it seems, are people speaking up. Only now did the news commentators call on faithful pastors. They didn't want faithful pastors 15 years ago. They were bigots then, but now they're saying we need somebody to tell us the truth again. Well, we're, we're, behind the cur we're behind the curve. You understand that, right? As a people, we're behind the curve, but our God is not. And nor is his truth any more, any less powerful today as it was in all of eternity. So fathers... You have a high calling, and wives and mothers, you have a high calling as well alongside your husband to be faithful, to, to teach your children. And teach them with the view that they themselves will be teachers of their children someday. 
And fathers, you have the added weight of being the one primarily accountable for that getting done. Our Lord will ask us, fathers, one day, were you faithful in teaching your children? That's what Moses, I think, was preparing the people for. In fact, I think Moses knew that there was great rebellion. He had already seen their rebellion and stubbornness in the wilderness. And he knew there was trouble coming in the promised land as well. Oh, the Lord says that they would have a heart to obey. Thank God he gave us a heart through Jesus Christ. So, Father's happy Father's Day and happy Mother's Day. And don't shirk or run from the weight of that. Submit to it and say, Father, in my own strength, I cannot fulfill this. But I give myself to you and you use me as the instrument you would have me to be in the lives of my children. So stand with me this morning. I mentioned that we typically don't have our Sunday evening services on Mother's Day and Father's Day. So... Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you folks on Wednesday evening if I don't see you before, but thank you for being here today. Let's close. Father, we do thank you for your word for this day. Lord, thank you for the, the weightiness of the word as it rests upon the shoulders, my own and those of the men in this church today, and even perhaps even the young men who are, who are thinking about the day that they may become a father. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't in our fleshliness re recall, run away from the weightiness of that, but that we might yield to it an understanding that only by your grace can I be the man that you've called me to be. And Lord, many of us have lived lives that were nowhere near to being the man that you had called us to be now. But Father, there is grace, there is mercy. Let this day be a new day. We're just saying that your mercies are new every morning, Father. I pray for that new mercy this morning that would call us to your word and to your spirit and to a fuller obedience in our lives. Thank you for faithful wives and mothers who come alongside of husbands and together are discipling their children or bringing them, communicating these truths. Father, we pray that if the Lord is to tarry, that there will be a faithful generation raised up through our obedience in this generation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.